So this is the uh, second talk in our little mini-series about what is God saying to us in these times. And it's kind of ironic that the title I believe that God has given me this week, what he is asking me to speak about, is this one. If there is a God, why are these bad things happening? Why is he making it happen? Or why doesn't he stop it? which is, of course, one of the biggest big questions that you could ever really ask. So thank you, Lord, for that one. Now, you may have come across the technical word for sharing our faith with people, which is apologetics. And it comes from the Greek word apologia, which means speaking in defence. And it seems kind of apt right now because as Christians we may well feel that we need to defend God in what is happening. People will be asking, if there's a God, why are we suffering? Why does God allow it? Why doesn't he do something about it? And that's part of an age-old question. Why do bad things happen? And especially to good people. Because we can kind of understand how they might happen to bad people because to some extent that fits with our ideas of justice. Most movies have goodies and baddies, don't they? And we all kind of feel that justice is done when the baddie gets his comeuppance because bad people deserve it in some way. But the opposite is true when we see bad things happening to good people. That, that doesn't seem fair or just because they don't deserve it. And as Christians, we can sometimes tie ourselves up in knots about this when we say God is in control. And we probably know what we mean by that. But you know, it's pretty difficult to claim that God is in control of all of the good things that happen, but that he isn't controlling all of the bad things. It kind of sounds like we're trying to have our cake and eat it. These are difficult questions. And difficult questions do not have easy answers. But for us as Christians, we often feel that we have to have an answer. Because if Christianity is true and the Bible is true, then there must be answers to everything. Because we live in an age of science, we've grown up with the idea that pretty much everything is or should be explainable. We instinctively feel that for there to be any mystery involved somehow undermines Christian faith. Even though, if you think about it, the very idea that we should be able to understand everything on the same level as God understands everything is really a bit ridiculous. Isaiah 55 is surely right. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Pretty obvious that that would be the case, wouldn't you say, if he is God and we are not. So to be very honest with you, I'm not convinced that there is an easy answer to this question right now. If Lynn and I look at our own lives, for example, they've been a mixture of good things and bad things. Well, we don't know why. Why did we have a child who's disabled? I don't know. 
Why did we have a grandson who died three weeks after he was born? I don't know. Why did Lynn's grandmother die peacefully at the age of 96 when her sister died painfully at the age of 40? I don't know. Why was my father miraculously healed of polio as a child when a man came up to my grandparents on a Cumbrian beach and said to them, if you take your son into the water right now, Jesus will heal him? And he did. Why did my father never tell me that story before he died? It was my aunt who told me that years later, just before she died. Why did I have a stroke on the Saturday evening before our very first Sunday leading Ellsbury Vineyard? Why did I survive that when lots of other people have strokes and don't survive them? I don't know. We do tend to assume that there must be an answer to these things and that God is answerable to us for that answer. You know, it's interesting that in the ancient world they had no problem with mystery in how the world worked. It's only the age of science that wants to eliminate it. And in many ways, of course, that's good because we want the mystery of coronavirus to be solved as soon as possible, don't we? So let's pray for the scientists who are working on that. But without realising it, many Christians have bought into some less helpful aspects of being in an age of science. Maybe God has quite intentionally embedded mystery in some of the answers to life's big questions. Maybe God says to us, I'll show you parts of the answer, but I'm asking you to trust me for parts of it as well, because that's the way he wants things to work in our relationship with him. Maybe he wants us to make a decision to trust him, that there are answers for everything that happens, but on this side of eternity, we will only ever really grasp a few of them that God helps us to see some parts of the answer to some parts of the question, but he asks us to leave the rest in his hands. So in this talk this morning, I'm not going to offer any nice, simple Christian answer that neatly explains why bad things happen. While I was writing this talk during the week, we were dealing with a cry for help on our COVID helpline from a lady who's bedridden after brain surgery. She has four young children with her and her mother who has lung disease, who's on antibiotics. So they're in house isolation. They had no one to help them and they had no food in the house. She said in her message that they were desperate. I'm not going to try to tell her that there is a nice, easy Christian answer as to why she's suffering. What we are going to do is to love her with the love of Jesus and to be there for her. And within the hour, we delivered a big bag of food to her and she'd sent us a photo of her two-year-old daughter. And she said, my youngest is loving her fruit. Thank you. So no slick, easy answers this morning. I just want to share some thoughts with you that I personally find helpful. Five things that I would not say are the answer, 
but maybe they are parts of an answer. Because although we may not be able to say everything, that doesn't mean we can't say anything. So let's start with the fact that we live in a world in which things are not as they should be and people are not as they should be. We're part of a world that has been somehow knocked off kilter, which means it's gone a bit askew, not in perfect balance, out of order, and not working as it was supposed to. Something is not right. Things are not as they should be, and people are not as they should be. And another way of putting that would be to say that, to some extent, we are all broken people living in a broken world. Sometimes we're victims of that, and sometimes we're one of the causes of that. So when we ask God, why do bad things happen? We have to see that sometimes we are part of the problem. So we shouldn't blame God for the fact that even before coronavirus, millions were starving. When the world that God made is easily able to produce enough food to feed everyone. And we shouldn't blame God for supermarket shelves being bare when we are the ones who've been panic buying and stockpiling. One of the downsides of God having created us with what's called free will, the freedom to make choices, is that that allows us to make bad choices as well, including to live our lives selfishly. It's easy for us to think that the problems in this world are just caused by the really bad people. But Alexander Solzhenitsyn was surely right when he said that the line between good and bad doesn't run between groups of people. The good is like us and the bad is like them. It runs down through every one of us. And over time, that line shifts position, especially when we're under pressure like now. We're all caught up in what the Bible calls sin. Sometimes we're its perpetrators and sometimes we're its victims. And if you want a less religious-sounding word for sin, then selfishness is not actually a bad starting point. And the very worst things that people do are really acts of hyper-selfishness. Selfishness with no conscience and no boundaries. Even when we know that others will be hurt and harmed because of it. But we do it anyway. So here are five thoughts for when bad things happen. Five things that, for me personally, are not the answer, but maybe are part of an answer. So here's thought number one. Asking God why is not new. People throughout the Bible were asking the same questions. If the Bible says it's okay to have questions about why bad things happen why God allows them and where God is when they do, then clearly we are allowed to ask those questions as well. The book of Job, which is one of the longest books in the Bible, is about nothing but those kind of questions. About one third of the Psalms are cries of the heart. They're called laments. And they come out of anguish and pain and people asking God why 
There's even a book in the Bible that is called Lamentations. Here's an example of one in Psalm 31. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction. I am the utter contempt of my neighbours. I am forgotten as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. And the person saying this is the great King David who fought Goliath, whose story we use as a metaphor for overcoming giants in our lives, of whom the Bible says he was a man after God's heart and that the Messiah would be like him. So it's okay to respond to what happens in life with normal human emotions. You are not letting God down. You're not a bad person or a bad Christian if you feel that way. It's part of being human. And Jesus is our example in that to encourage us that it's okay. Because as well as being fully God, we must never forget that Jesus was also fully human. In the lead up to the cross, the Bible says that Jesus was deeply distressed and troubled, overwhelmed with sorrow. The shortest verse in the Bible is John eleven thirty five. Two words, Jesus wept. And the reason that he was crying was because his friend had died. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, God hadn't, of course, because God has never forsaken anyone, ever. But it felt like that, because Jesus was authentically human as well as authentically God. And that is what it feels like us, uh, like for us at times as well, doesn't it? Philippians 2 tells us that to become just like us, Jesus laid aside everything to do with being God that was incompatible with being fully human. He gave up his rights and privileges as God that would have given him an unfair advantage over us in living life as we have to, so that he could be a role model for us in living life as God's people in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's not deny our emotions and our feelings but let's find Jesus in our emotions and our feelings because we know he understands. Thought number two, bad things are never good and they're never God, but he can make them work together for good. In other words, God can turn bad things around and make good come out of them. Romans 8.28 tells us, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And notice here how it doesn't say those things are all good in themselves. It says that in all things God is working for our good. So this is an encouragement to keep loving him, to keep inviting him and keep trusting him to be doing that. Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time for everything, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. So when bad things happen, we're allowed to weep and mourn because there's a time for that. Allow your tears to come 
but at the same time, allow God to come too and to turn things around from the inside. He always loves us as we are, but he also always loves us too much to leave us that way. Psalm 30 says, you've turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You've taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy. And that is what he loves to do, but always give it time. And don't let bitterness or resentment or anger take root in the meantime. Thought number three, we have a choice as to how we respond when bad things happen. We can't change the things, but we can choose how we respond to those things. You know, we're always reaching junctions in the road in our journey of life, and we're always having to decide which way to turn. Whether we turn away from Jesus because he's allowed it to happen, or we turn towards him. And we fill in the gaps in what we don't understand with trust and faith in who God is and what God is like. That he loves us and cares for us and feels our pain. In that verse that we just read, the Apostle Paul said, I know that in all things God is working for my good. But how did he know that? The answer is, he didn't. He only knew it by trusting God that it was true and that it would become true in his life. And he chose to hang on to that truth when things went wrong, which actually they did quite a lot. Just read 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. He was trusting in the nature and character of God, whatever things happened in his life. Now, I don't know about you, but my wife Lynn and I really like detective dramas. And I've always thought of myself as a bit like Sherlock Holmes. Lynn says that I have the same kind of emotional sensitivity as Sherlock, which I assume is a compliment. Anyway, you may have seen stories in which the detective is investigating something really bad that's happened, and he's faced with a dilemma. Because all of the evidence that's come out so far makes everyone assume that a certain person must have been responsible. But the detective knows that person. He's a friend. And he knows them so well that he's convinced it couldn't possibly have been his friend who did this terrible thing. So there must be more to it. Other information, other evidence that hasn't yet come out. So he keeps asking questions and he keeps working on it. And all the while he's trusting in what he knows his friend is really like. And eventually what's happened and why comes to light and starts to make sense. It all becomes clear, but not until the very end of the drama. When that friend who he always believed the best of from the very start was proven not to have done it. When bad things happen, do we have that kind of faith that we know our friend Jesus that well? Well enough for us to be able to say, we don't have all the information yet and all the evidence yet, and we probably never will have in this life. 
but we do know that he couldn't possibly have done this thing that's happened because that's not what our friend Jesus is like and it will all make sense in the end. Thought number four, we need to work backwards from the future to the present. And that kind of sounds a bit weird, but what I mean is we have to look to the end of the story to make sense of the place in the story that we're at right now. It's what's called an eschatological perspective, long word, but all it means is to look at the present reality through the eyes of a future reality. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And he wasn't trivialising what people were going through when he said that. Paul had more than enough troubles of his own. He can only say that because he's looking backwards from the perspective of eternity. Revelation 21 at the end of the New Testament is painting a picture with words of how things will be in the future. And it's not a scientist's explanation, it's an artist's explanation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And that old order of things is death and mourning and crying and pain. And we can't easily see God in the old order of things that we're in right now, in this broken world, except with eyes of faith. But in the new order of things, we will see him. And he will personally wipe every tear from our eyes. With all eternity to look forward to, life on earth pales into insignificance, even though it's all we can see right now. But for us as Christians, ultimately, it's the future that makes sense of the present. And then finally, thought number five. In Jesus, God himself came to personally experience the bad that happens in our world. Why would he do that? No other religion believes in a God who would lower himself like that. Gods are supposed to be up there and separate and otherworldly. But Dorothy Sayers said this, whatever reason God chose to make people as they are, suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He himself has gone through the whole human experience, from family life and hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair and death. Jesus didn't come to share in our humanity as a gesture. He came to experience it as we experience it. And if you'll forgive the slightly crude analogy, it's like the egg and bacon breakfast. In the egg and bacon breakfast, the chicken is involved, 
but the pig is committed. And when God decided to come into his creation through Jesus, he didn't just come like a guest or visitor, watching things unfold from up in the sky. He didn't come to be involved at a distance. He came to be committed. Now, when he came, Israel was experiencing a lot of hardship, especially because it was occupied by the Roman legions. And everyone was asking, why is this happening? We're the people of God. He loves us. He's told us that over and over again. Why doesn't God do something about this? So their hope and their expectation was for a Messiah who would come with an army and deliver them. But that wasn't the kind of Messiah that Jesus came to be. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering and by his wounds we are healed. The cross is not just telling us what to believe, but he's showing us, it's showing us what kind of God we believe in, one who took our pain and bore our suffering, so that by his wounds we are healed. Somehow the suffering of the cross was a place of healing. Our healing comes from his wounding. And in the Christmas story, it says that one of the names that Jesus would be given is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So he is not a God up there, sending instructions from heaven through messengers. He's the God who came to be God with us down here. And not only that, it wasn't just like a a royal visit where maybe the queen comes to your workplace one day. And then she goes back to Buckingham Palace and you never see or hear from her again. You never call, you never write, as the stereotype Jewish mother always says. Jesus said in John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another friend to help you and be with you forever. And that Greek word also means another helper, another comforter or another companion one who is just like him, the Holy Spirit. So to finish, here's a very quick recap on those five thoughts. Asking God why is not new. People throughout the Bible asked the same questions. So it's totally okay for us to be asking them as well. We are not supposed to deny our feelings and emotions but we're invited to ask Jesus into our feelings and emotions. Bad things are never good and they're never God, but he can make them work together for good. So let's invite him to do that for us. Let's say, come Holy Spirit into my situation and turn it around. Bring good out of this in ways that I can't imagine. We have a choice as to how we respond when bad things happen. Do we blame God for it? Why are you letting this happen? Or do we be like the detective, trusting our friend that he couldn't possibly have done it because we know him too well, filling in the gaps in what we don't understand 
with trust and faithfulness until it all becomes clear in the end. We need to work backwards from the future to be able to see the present in eternal perspective. To focus our eyes on the end of the story, which is the only way to really make sense of where we're at in the story right now. We can't make sense of the present without an eternal perspective. And then last but not least, in Jesus, God himself came to personally experience the bad that happens in our world. We worship a God of whom it can never be said, you wouldn't know what it's like to be me and to have to live life as I have to, because he does. There's something that all of these thoughts have in common. They all invite us to make a decision and a choice, to trust God or to blame God. When we can't see God in what's happening, they invite us to live by faith and not by sight, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.7. When bad things happen, that is the time to live by faithfulness to what we believe and by faithfulness to the one in whom we believe, in spite of what we see. To invite God in to where we're at and to what we're experiencing to say, come Holy Spirit and bring your supernatural life-changing presence. And just like last week, we'll give the final word to Jesus. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. <laughs>